This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, part of your world, tracing the origins of the Little Mermaid. So, as you might have guessed from that title, it is time for another Fairy Tales in Focus episode. And this one is rather topical thanks to the recent release of Disney's live-action The Little Mermaid. Yeah, now mermaids hold a special place both in mythology, folklore and popular culture, and we have done an episode dedicated to the folkloric mermaid, so check that Mm -hmm. out. Um, But we are going to be sort of focusing on the inspiration and nuances of the fairy tale for this. Uh, Now, just a brief overview, as we do every week, of what fairy tales are. So fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together. Um, it's like a garage sale. Uh, it's quite... <laughs> it's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories is- exist in almost every culture in the world and what's a fairy tale in one place might be considered to be a legend in another. Yeah, broadly speaking, legends and epics um, have, his- have an a historical element Ooh, can't speak and are considered to have happened in full or in part yeah there's a sense of place and time meanwhile morality tales fables and parables are concerned with delivering a message and usually that is religious social or philosophical whereas fairy tales contain fancy creatures so elves gnomes mermaids dragons etc and they do not contain more than so superficial references to religion in general, mm-hmm. although there are exceptions, or to actual places, historical people or events, except in the broadest, vaguest terms. They happened once upon a time or Frodo, so long ago. Yes. Uh, now, some folklorists prefer the term Martian, um, which is wonder tale, um, which was sort of, you see, famously coined, obviously, by the Brothers Grimm in their original collection. Yeah. Um, while we're familiar with fairy tales as they've been preserved, written down, and while this can make it tricky to get at the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing, etc., were almost exclusively of a certain sort, so male, white, etc., um, or at least very, very rich. Yes. <laughs> you had to be a pretty rich woman to be able to make writing your... You were all very... Edu- you know, to have the, ed- the education, I think, to have access to writing. Um, but fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that, and were most likely handed down from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. Um, and another tale name for them is Spinning Tales. Um, obviously, there are mm-hmm. male equivalents as well. This is a sort of hunting stories and things. And when we say spinning tales and hunting tales, etc., um, there, there really isn't as much of a gender divide as people think. The gender divide comes along comparatively recently on the, the yeah. culture clock, if you like. Um, we, we know women yes. hunted. We know men spun. In fact, up until fairly recently, um, in, in Scotland at least, it was normal for men to nick their own socks because no one could have kept up with the necessary amount of socks re- re- needed for a household if it was just one person knitting the socks. So every <laughs> every man could knit as well. Constantly. <laughs> fact there for you. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Uh, now, some some people might turn around and say, okay, but hold on a second, I'm confused now with fairy tales and things like that. Uh, some people like to have the division whereby they we refer to them as folk tales when they're the oral version and fairy tales when they are the written down published version. But as we said, there's a whole mixy mashy thing. <laughs> Um, and this is because the nature of a story is to shapeshift to survive. Um, and fairy tales have been shapeshifting for a very long time. They are the original shapeshifters. <laughs> yes. Okay, without further ado, a little mer- The Little Mermaid, A History. Um, now, before we get into this, I'm just going to say a quick caveat of there is quite a strong theory of exactly what um, influenced Hans Christian Andersen. Um, mm-hmm. which we will get to in due course, just because yeah. there's a lot of background information that kind of informs that opinion, so it's best to go through it kind of in order, I think. Yes. We've obviously mentioned this before, but we'll start at the beginning. Yes. So, The Little Mermaid is a very recent fairy tale. It was written down by a Danish author, Hans Christian Andersen, and published in 1837. Yeah. Now, we actually still therefore have notes and outlines of the original of the story, so there's a lot less guesswork going on when we're kind of considering its origins, um, because Anderson actually put in writing what his influences were. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Which is very, very handy. This is not something we get for things like yeah, Snow White. <laughs> thank you, Anderson. Uh... <laughs> We've also got a lot of the original criticism which was levelled at this story, um, it's worth adding here that Anderson's fairy tale endings were almost always bittersweet. At least they were in the stories that really involved you and pulled you in. Um, basically, if they were the more distant stories that kept your arm's length, you know, they were kind of like quite short amusement tales, then you might get a bog standard happy ending. But generally, he didn't really write your classic happy fairy tale ending. Yeah. Now, in case you're not sure what we're talking about, um, you might want to consider The Little Match Girl or The Red Shoes. Uh, technically, they end on a triumphal note, but, like, at what cost? <laughs> yeah, I think as a child, I, I never read a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale without feeling a little bit sort of, like, wistful and uncomfortable at the end of it. Even something like The Snow yeah, Queen. Yeah, <laughs> you sort of look at Hans Christian Andersen and you're like, are you okay, man? Because I don't think you're okay. Yeah, and I, I don't think he was okay at all. Um, in addition, Anderson's fairy tales were thematically very heavily swayed by Christian values and, more importantly, by mm-hmm. Christian perspectives. So while he didn't necessarily embrace all of it himself, um, there were certain aspects of Christianity that very much he, he very much believed in or at least he very much wanted to be able to believe yeah. in maybe that's a better way of putting it um and a lot of other folklorists found this distasteful for a variety of reasons not least of which was the traditional perspective of god being as much a fantasy figure in fairy tales as any other magical yes. creature now this is where we start to get writers uh <laughs> <laughs> right, writers right, bitching at each other, which they've been yes. doing with uh, So P.L. Uh, Travers, who was the author of Mary Poppins, and we really ought to do an episode just about her, um, accused Anderson of Shit. blackmail, um, since at the end of The Little Mermaid, it becomes clear that children can add or detract a year from the mermaid's 300 years of good service by their own good or bad (laughs) behaviour. That is a kick in the teeth. Travers literally said, 
a year taken off when a child behaves, a year shed, a tear shed, and a day added whenever a child is naughty. Anderson, this is blackmail, and the children know it and say nothing. That's magnanimity for you. Um, And to be honest, she had a point. Um, Children, for the most part, do not like moralising or hard conditions set in their fixture in general. So what exactly is it about the Little Mermaid that overcame that and made it one of the most popular and well-known fairy tales of all time? Yeah, so I think this is where we start delving into the themes just a little bit. So what was Anderson really saying? Mm -hmm. Now, to understand where he was coming from, let's just recap the main points of The Little Mermaid in in a moment. Um, But basically, it isn't at all like the Disney version everyone is so familiar with. It's actually a really tragic story that ends on a somewhat questionable note of hope. Uh, Most children, including me are bewitched by the idea of an undersea kingdom, a mermaid who doesn't quite fit in, who questions instead of just accepting, and who breaks the rules for a chance at what she wants. But they are equally dissatisfied with the ending, because when you're a child, what good is the promise of a pure, unsullied happiness in 300 years' time? At at that age, it might as well be forever. And the acquisition of a soul was never what the child reader was interested in. Now, Anderson seems to have had several reasons for framing the story as he did, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But let's go over the story itself. So it starts with a young mermaid, surprise, surprise, who on her 15th birthday is permitted to rise to the surface of the sea for a glimpse at the world above. This is not forbidden. All mermaids are allowed to do this once a year, taking it in turns. Now, on her turn, the mermaid sees a birthday celebration aboard a fine vessel. She swims closer and sees that the celebration is for a handsome prince whom she immediately falls in love with. Surprise, surprise. At this point, a violent storm suddenly blows up and wrecks the ship. The mermaid swims to the young, unconscious prince and takes hold of him. She saves his life by swimming him to shore and is then forced to retreat to the sea where she watches. There is a temple nearby and a young woman comes down from it and finds the prince on the shore. She has him taken to the temple and cared for. The prince never sees the mermaid, instead believing that it is this young woman who saved his life. Meanwhile, the mermaid herself falls into something like a depression. In, in the story, I think it's she falls to melancholy, mm. is the way Anderson phrases it. And she asks her grandmother if humans can live forever. Her grandmother replies that human lives are very short compared to the 300 years allotted to a mermaid, but that when a human dies, his soul or her soul will rise up from their body and enter paradise living on forever. By contrast, all mermaids when they die become sea So this kind of triggers something in the in the Little Mermaid who, who longs now to be human. She yearns for the prince and to have a soul. So she visits the sea witch, who we should point out is not actually a villain and doesn't try to trick her in this. The sea witch says that it's true, mermaids do not have souls. However, if she can love a human and have them love her in return, part of their soul will flow into her and she will also then have a soul. So she gives the little mermaid a potion, which turns her into a human, warning her that it will feel as if a sword is cleaving her body. But afterwards, she will have a human body and she will be incredibly graceful, although it will always feel as if she's walking on knives. Once human, she will never be able to return to the sea. In return, the little mermaid gives the sea witch her voice, 
the most enchanting voice in the world. Uh, Another condition, obviously, is that if the mermaid does not succeed in making the prince fall in love with her, at dawn on the day after he marries someone else, she will turn into sea foam, just as every mermaid does when she dies. So basically, it's a case of, you know, it's not a three-day limit like you see in the Disney film. It's you've got as much time as it takes, but if he falls for somebody else, then essentially that that will kill you. So the little mermaid swims up to the shore, takes the potion, and then passes out naked on the sand where the prince finds her. He is enchanted by her beauty and grace, but sad to discover that she's mute. He especially likes to see her dance, and she often dances for him even though the pain is terrible. The prince grows very fond of her, calling her his best companion. They go everywhere together, but he never falls in love with her. When his parents arrange a marriage for him with the princess of a neighbouring kingdom, he refuses, confessing to the mermaid that he will not marry without love and he can only love the woman from the temple who saved his life. Now, it turns out that the princess is the woman from the temple. (laughs) Well, yay! She was there for schooling, and when the prince sees her, he falls in love and agrees to the marriage. The wedding is celebrated on a royal ship, and the mermaid's heart breaks. She cannot help thinking of all she has sacrificed and suffered for the prince, and all of it for nothing, and now death awaits her. However, her sisters, her six sisters, I believe, rise up around the ship and tell her that if she kills the prince before dawn, she'll turn back into a mermaid and be able to return home. They give her a dagger, which the sea witch gave them in return for their beautiful hair. So the mermaid goes to the cabin where the prince and his new wife lie sleeping together, but in the end she cannot bring herself to kill him. Instead, she accepts her decision, kissing him on the forehead and saying, your happiness is my happiness. Then she throws the dagger into the sea and hurls herself after it. We come to the questionable note of hope. Um, Instead of turning into sea foam, her spirit rises from her body to mingle with the other spirits of the air. They tell her that because of her selflessness, she has ascended to the realm of air. Now she has a chance to earn a soul and eternal paradise by doing good deeds for mankind for 300 years. So. (laughs) It's a very different... I think the thing is, the Disney one is so well known that everybody thinks, oh yeah, Yeah. I know the story of The Little Mermaid. And then someone will say, yeah, but it doesn't have a happy ending in the original one. And everyone goes, oh, well, I like the Disney one better. And it's almost a completely different story thematically. Um, And there's some part of me that almost prefers the the original. Yeah, I mean, it turned me off mermaids when I was about eight. But but yeah, I I genuinely think that might be my origin of mermaids meh. Um, Because because it was so sad and it was not a satisfying ending. Um, but yes, as an adult looking at it and looking at the many things that Anderson probably was saying and certainly could have been saying, it it is it's kind of a more satisfying story for adults, particularly adults who understand that, you know, loving someone doesn't mean they have to love you back, for example. Yeah. There's also the fact that like obviously she's fifteen. Um, and, like, if you watch the Disney one, Eric, you know, he looks like he's in his 20s or something like that. Like, that is a grown man, and Ariel is 16. Whereas in this version, he's 15, and the prince is like, oh, I like this. She's now, like, my little sister. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Immediately friends, though. Immediately friends, though. And the thing is, 
he doesn't treat her badly. He doesn't know she's suffering. You know, he doesn't understand that she's in pain, both emotional and physical. He doesn't know any of it. He He's kind of almost treated... He treats yeah. her like an equal without understanding that there are unique needs there that aren't being met because she can't tell him. And he... How how the hell would he... I mean, if you met a mute... Okay, maybe you would now. But if this story hadn't been written and you find a mute child on a beach and um, you end up taking that child in and you, you grow to love them because they're a really great person, but you don't fall in love with them, are you going to be thinking, well, actually, it's a mermaid. I should really be addressing that issue. Yeah, her. and it's one of the issues of, of sort of people have pointed out, obviously, in the um, in the Disney version is, of course, the fact that um, Ariel could write. And we know that she could write because yes. she literally signed her name on the villainous contract. So why yes. she didn't just, you know, <laughs> just write out in the sand, hey, uh, it's a me. <laughs> Maybe she didn't write Danish. I don't know. Um, anyway, so let's have a look at what Anderson was really saying, part two. So there are many theories as to what Hans Christian Anderson really meant, and as with all theories regarding work by someone who is dead and cannot be asked, we have to allow for both the internal bias of the interpreter and the fact that all context is now gone. So we cannot know for sure, but we can all form opinions on the subject. Um, after all, stories change in the ears of the listener. Uh, what a story makes you think and feel is also important. So if you have a different opinion from what I th yes. I'm pretty sure Madeline and I are going to conclude at the end of this, then that's fine because that's important. Uh, stories should make you feel different things and not everyone should get the same message from every story. Yes. So let's have a look at some of them. So uh, we'll begin with uh, uh, Virginia Borge. Borges? Or is it Borges? Or I don't know. I, I always read it as Borges because uh, I think it's Borges. She's a literary critic, yeah. I think. So she interpreted the story as being a message about love and self-sacrifice and being aware of the danger of accepting abuse or inconsistent treatment in the name of love, which I can, I can understand. I can understand it, but there's nothing in the story that says the prince genuinely or intentionally ever treats her badly. He just doesn't yeah, understand. Yeah, that's, that's the big thing, is that she dances, like, in a modern gaze, it's almost like, actually, and I know, obviously, she's, the lack of communication does come from the fact that she's, you know, mute, but that doesn't mean she can't emote and show him that the dancing hurts her. She makes an active decision to hide that, um, and there's no sort of implication that he knows that it hurts her and that she's hiding it and he's forcing her to do it anyway. Um, he doesn't know that it's hurting her. He doesn't know the situation. All he knows is that she looks, she, you know, he likes to see her dance. She seems to like dancing because she does it for him, etc. You know, uh, it doesn't seem like abuse. It just seems yeah. like an uneven relationship which has kind of been dictated by her and not by him. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, I think, um, which is why I kind of don't yeah. agree with Borges' interpretation, even though I can see why you'd read it that way. Um, there's a, a really great essay called The Female Price of Male Pleasure, and I think The Little Mermaid is referenced in it, and it's referenced in the sense of... Um, because girls are initially told that sex will hurt, and that mm -hmm. is the thing you're told immediately kind of from the get-go from day one um we're sort of 
given this background message of it's going to hurt all the time, ergo you kind of expect it to and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, whereas if we, we just said to girls, it could be uncomfortable, but if you communicate with your partner and say what you like and don't feel self-conscious or embarrassed about asking for what you want and if they are not willing to meet you halfway, you mm-hmm. know, bearing in mind that there, there might both be things for both of you that, that you don't want to do, um, if you if they can't meet you halfway, then probably that's not somebody you should be having sex with. Find somebody who is willing to be um, as generous as you're willing to be, etc. Um, and I, I think they were kind of referencing it in the sense of, you know, we, we're training girls to hide the fact that something hurts mm-hmm. them in order to give a man pleasure. And I think this is kind of the sort of thing where Virginia Borges is coming from. But yeah. as you make the point, that ball is entirely in the mermaid's court. Because without without any kind of communication, without sort of, I'd rather not dance because, oh my God, it, you know, it, it's agony. It feels like knives are going through my feet. Um, without just emoting and displaying that, how the hell is he ever supposed to know? And so it could, you know, in that way, it could also be about society. And society is the is the thing at fault because the mermaid, yeah. the little mermaid is only a child. She's 15 years old. She doesn't know better. But at the same time, considering the period that it was written in, um, I I don't I don't think that that's what Hans Christian Andersen was necessarily trying to say. No, I think it's a bit of yeah. a leap. Um, Susan White, who is uh, a feminist literary interpreter, I think, um, interpreted the story as the dangerous passage of a girl into the speech and social symbolism of society. So. Um, the whole idea of growing up, hitting puberty, getting to young womanhood and the point where you might be thinking about forming a union in marriage with somebody or falling in love, etc. And the fact that you're trying to enact agency in a a male-dominated world. Again, I can see why Mm -hmm. people would read it this way, but contextually from the time it was written in, um, it kind of doesn't make sense to me to read it that way as in you can absolutely read it that way but for me personally it's like yeah and again it is interesting because i think there is an inherent childishness in the little mermaid which is obviously age appropriate and there is this kind of conversation about the fact that you get women the girls hitting puberty and they are suddenly on that knife edge between childhood and adulthood and they're put into adult situations while they are still developing and so there is still that inherent um kind of selfishness which is just natural as part of being part of that age because it's it's just biological you know um it makes sense and there's a kind the story therefore of her you know expecting that love feeling like she has her heart is breaking because she has not gotten that love i think we can all appreciate that unrequited love is horrible you know, it's it's not a good time, no matter what, no matter what age you are. Um, but there was a level of expectation there as well. Yeah, you're not entitled yes. to have someone love you back in the way that you. The thing is, he does love her, but he loves her as you say, like a little sister or like a best friend, or you know, almost like a little mascot, maybe in some ways. Perhaps a combination yes. of all those three. He'd love to keep her by his side as his his friend and companion. And if you want to point to a selfish action in the prince, it's the fact that, you know, he pities her for being mute. And then he obviously takes advantage of the fact that he can tell her things he can't tell anybody else because she literally cannot tell anyone yeah. else 
his secrets. So that's maybe the one really selfish thing he does, or yeah. selfishly oh, thoughtless oh, thing. Although he does. perhaps he literally is just confiding in her because he actually just generally does like her. We don't know, um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, the fact is that you know she has a level of expectation of him because she hasn't really had the chance to develop that proper empathy um, that you kind of get as you get a little bit older, yeah. where you really do start to kind of actually consider things from other people's perspective not for everybody but you know what i mean um so in that respect reading it in the modern day is an interesting um sort of look at those very awkward teenage years and actually the danger of being pushed into society or being pushed into adult situations which a lot of young girls are um when really they haven't necessarily developed the emotional skills to be able to navigate it safely and not to end up being abused or taken advantage of. Yeah, or, or even not even sort of, in, you know, intention is what makes abuse, yeah. uh, intention and a pattern of behaviour. Um, but not even that, just in a sense of, no, you are literally out of water, you are out of your depth here. Um, but you're going to be drawn to it because this is an adult thing and you will have a fascination for it like a moth to a flame. It's like that ballroom scene in Labyrinth yeah. where, you know, everything is very adult and it's tempting. And at the same time, it's very frightening. She's seeing a side of people that she's not sure she likes. And yet it's it's also really fascinating. So it, it it's difficult in that respect. So using The Little Mermaid is kind of a metaphor for... Um, navigating your way through late puberty into the point where you you would just have become an adult it is an interesting one definitely not sure it's what hans christian anderson meant but yes. you can certainly read it that way okay so we've got a guy named richter norton now uh in his book my dear boy gay love letters through the centuries uh, he theorizes that the little mermaid was written as a love letter by hans christian anderson to edvard Collin. Now, this is based on a letter that Anderson wrote to Colin upon hearing of Colin's engagement to a young woman around the same time that The Little Mermaid was written. Anderson wrote, I languish for you for a pretty Calabrian wench. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. Anderson also sent the original story to Colin. Now, Norton interprets the correspondence as a declaration of Anderson's homosexual love for Colin and describes The Little Mermaid as an allegory for Anderson's life. Yeah. Now, I realise that there is a fashion lately um, for taking pieces of literature and perhaps out of context and saying this is obviously what the author meant and sort of reclaiming things for the queer community if you like and yeah. sometimes that is absolutely justified that is quite literally what that author meant and other times it's a bit more sort of spurious there's not really enough evidence and it's clearly you're looking at it with a queer eye and there's nothing wrong with that but you cannot expect everybody to agree with you yeah. however when it comes to the little mermaid the more you think about the character and the fact that this is literally someone who is a different species falling in love with the wrong species someone who probably couldn't love them back you know if she'd stayed a mermaid exactly what kind of relationship would they have been able to have yeah and it, it's you know it, it 
in the same way that, and I don't think people like saying it like this, but I'll just be blunt, but if you happen to be gay and you are really, really just attracted to men, um, and you are straight and someone else is straight and they are really, really only attracted to women, um, assuming they are, you know, a straight man, then that's kind of a hopeless case, really, in terms of it, you can, obviously you can always challenge yourself on terms of, well, this person has got everything else I want, but except that one thing and that one thing, how important is that one thing? Um, but on, you know, it, it, it's not going to work, is it? And I think Anderson was well aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's the a bird may love a fish, but where will where will they live? Thing, yeah. Um, and I, it's this kind of this idea which Norton sort of presents that the the short story is basically saying that not just within the society, sorry, not not just within the kind of the context of of their actual relationship with what one being straight, the other one not, uh, but also within the society. Um, that um, it is just as possible for a man and another man to be together as it is for a man and a mermaid to be together. Um, And the more you look at it, the more you also consider the struggle that it appears that Hans Christian Andersen had with religion, um, you know, his desperate kind of clawing for it in some ways that he he was trying to find himself in it he was trying to i think personally um balance his own you know predilections and things like that predilections makes it sound like it's something gross uh (laughs) but you know it's like his himself with his beliefs i think he was trying to balance those which is why we see so much struggle um in his stories around sort of um christian sort of thoughts and this weird idealization of it as well um there's almost a sense and it of is the little mermaid wants something she can't have and maybe she wants something she doesn't have any right to have because of you know the species difference for a start and that is yeah. why she suffers but it doesn't mean her suffering is meaningless you know we should we should be compassionate about her suffering we should feel bad for her suffering we want her suffering to end when we read the story or you know most of us do um yeah but the whole sort of it's kind of a having your cake and eating it situation where at the end it's like he's not going to love her back because he can't fall in love with her she's just it's just not her Um, yeah but she still gets a shot at having a soul yeah which for me really does speak of of anderson basically saying I cannot have you, but perhaps I can redeem this part of me, which is in his mind wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, or make my peace because I am making that sacrifice. I'm making the sacrifice to not act upon these impulses, etc. Want to not, you know, um, to love, but to love selflessly, etc. Um, and it's hopelessly sad in that way and i there's just so much other that like also the idea of the dancing and it hurting for me that i've always read that as that actually being a total allegory for showing you know showing someone you love support in their relationship with someone else you know yeah you you are being the best friend you're there you're having fun with them you're doing the things they are enjoying and you're hiding from them how much it hurts that they don't see you yeah. the way that you want them to. 
that maybe they can't see you that way because you know what the fates didn't yeah. align and, and just also the idea again of of being muted that anderson could not express you know his true feelings you know it even says that that it must remain a mystery that society has muted him in the way that the little mermaid has been muted i think it's just incredibly sad moving but very sad yes yeah absolutely so i mean we can't know for sure but it seems to me reading the the story quite closely and then thinking Mm -hmm. about what we know about hans christian anderson and his life he didn't have the happiest of childhoods there's there's mention of some sort of childhood abuse there we don't know exactly what kind and the fact that he seems to have been somebody who was always seeking something and never really finding a place where he fit in there's definitely a lot of him in the story um and then that letter well that one letter by itself you know, some men had romantic friendships at that time. They weren't necessarily sexual. But then we all were all kind of primed by this backlog of history to say, oh, well, just because they spoke that way, that was the way they spoke back then. It was just the way that, you know, two men might share a bed and it meant nothing. It's like, yeah, but it doesn't mean it always meant nothing. Do you see yeah, what I mean? Also, <laughs> there is something to be said about the term, my sentiments for you are those of a woman. I mean... It's a little bit like yeah, it's a little I, bit like Mary Shelley saying she she was she would get she was happy to get towsy mousy with other women and people being like oh that just means she's and I'm like no we we know what this means we know what towsy mousy means <laughs> in this context. Well, Emily Dickinson saying I licked the envelope for the slightest trace of your lips upon it, and it's like. That's not just a romantic friendship, is it? You know, yeah, I, I kind of crazy. feel like if... <laughs> the way I say it is right. If you read this and you understand it to be, if you read this from a sort of correspondence between a man and a woman, and you immediately think, "Oh, that's romantic," then you have got to, <laughs> you have got to consider the <laughs> the possibility <laughs> that it might be romantic, even if it's between people yeah, so of the maybe same it was in... sex. Yeah. Really. Okay, let's look at some of the influences and origins, um, because there were some, despite the fact that The Little Mermaid is technically an original fairy tale. Obviously, nothing springs from nothing, so we all get influenced by something when we're writing. Yes. Okay, so essentially thanks to uh, a lot of controversy over Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, a backlash of people have been insisting that mermaids in myth originate from the coast of Africa and were appropriated. Yeah, um, there absolutely are African-centric myths um, with mermaids and and their equivalents. I can't remember the exact word, I'm afraid, and there's about several of them, because obviously Africa is a huge place with many, many cultures. Um, But they they absolutely exist in myth, but it's blatantly untrue to say that all of them originated from there. Um, Every culture in the world developed myths and folktales around creatures that were either mermaids or meros or analogous to them, so selkies, sirens, sea maidens, etc., Um, It's not inaccurate to say that The Little Mermaid is Danish in origin, since it is. However, there's not a great deal to suggest that Anderson was actually setting it in Denmark. Yes. Because it seems to be quite a nebulous fancy fairy tale realm, as you would expect. Yes. Now, um, it would be just as incorrect to say that all mermaid myths 
you come from Denmark, uh, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just yes, laughable. Yes, the backlash to the other backlash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, they, they people are there, oh, all, all mermaid myths come from Africa, you've appropriated them. It's like, no, all the myths come from Denmark. It's like, Ireland's over here with its meros and Greeks, Greece is over there with its sirens, and and, and then there's the Celtic flesh-eating sea maidens. Yeah, like, <laughs> there's so yes. many of them. So most... In fact, the, basically any culture which has had water close by has had some kind of mermaid sort of creature or myth. And perhaps perhaps we can make an argument that it all originated when, from one place back in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, but I just think that it's a natural thing of, there's water, what if fish but like us? <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so there are a few sources which definitely seem to have had a direct influence on Anderson, however. So let's take a look at some of those. Okay. Do you want me to start with yeah, the first Yeah, please one? <laughs> don't make me say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the earliest, um, I, say, I want to say concrete, no myth's really concrete, but the earliest myth that, that you can find that it's likely Anderson would have had access to is that of um, Oceanus and Atargatus, which is originally Babylonian um, from 1000 before Common Era. So that's a very long time ago, obviously. Um, now, in this, I believe it's, you know, the, the mermaid part is yeah. kind of incidental. Um, uh, Oanus was married. Married? She was married. She was married as well. She was married to Atagatus. Um, and I cannot remember the exact details of the story, but she as ends up do. murdering her husband. And in shame, she, yeah, as you do. <laughs> and she flees into the sea and turns herself into a mermaid out of shame. Although it depends, really, because that's kind of the more Greek version of that story. And we know that the, the Greeks kind of overwrit a lot of myths mm. and things with their more patriarchal views when that came along um, and it, it may well have simply been that she returned to the sea uh, because that's where she belonged and that there may have been other reasons if you read any Babylonian myths and um, they're um, they're usually a lot more nebulous and a lot more difficult to pin down the exact motivations of the characters they are very metaphorical Absolutely. I think so we have that. Uh, we also have um, Saint Senera of Zenor, um, also called um, Asenora of Breton, which is in uh, 1235. She's kind of a Cornish Saxon saint, um, along with Saint Morwenna, who's another one who... But basically, with Saint Senara, um, she offended the local chieftain, I think, when she converted to Christianity, and he had her locked up in a barrel which he then sent set out to sea. He had it dumped in the sea. So she's set in this barrel and it's just abandoned over the side of the cliff. Um, yeah, that but, was it. Because I remember now, it's like, yeah. it wasn't just we're going to push her out to sea. <laughs> he got her in a barrel and rolled it off the edge of a cliff. Yeah, that's right. Because that it wasn't enough to just drown her. It had to be really horrible. Um, but an angel comes down, opens the barrel, and Saint Samara is saved when she springs from the barrel, bearing the long tail of a fish. Doesn't actually say it replaces her legs, but if you look at any of the imagery from the time, it shows her with a fish's tail instead of instead of legs. Um, and the same sort of thing happened with Saint Morwenna, who fled 
persecution by leaping off a cliff and was saved before she could kill herself by jumping into the sea um, by or rather she landed in the sea and emerged with a long fish's tail there's a very good chance that these Saxon Christian saint stories actually have an origin in the far older folk tales of mermaids in the region. In fact, we know Cornwall has so yes. many mermaid stories. And it is the fact that actually, you know, there are there just seem to be several stories which involve women jumping off of or being pushed off of cliffs into the sea um, and emerging with sort of fish's tails and therefore surviving. Um, which for me is kind of interesting yes. because it almost sort of like flips the narrative Anderson has put forward, whereby these women are saved because they're Christian and therefore are made into mermaids. Therefore, all, all mermaids are Christian. Uh, or <laughs> rather than the other way around. Anyway. Uh... Um, then then there is the very, very old folk song Anwardinwara, which is Irish. It's a shonnos, which means that traditionally it was sung without accompaniment um, and it was passed down word of mouth. And shonnos is very interesting in the sense of it's a particular style of singing where you do all the ornamentation pretty mm. much with your voice. So you might have had a fiddle in the background providing it a drone to kind of keep the key, but other than that, there wasn't any, there wasn't a drum, there wasn't any yeah. baron or anything like that. Um, and you, you, because they were kind of considered sacred songs, you might only learn a line a month, and you had to learn it from someone who had learned it. There was they, they tracked a lineage of um, people who who knew the songs, so we know that they're mm. kind of they're quite accurate. Um, anyway, we think it's around about the 13th century, although it's impossible to tell because that song has probably been around far longer, and Irish hasn't actually changed that much. Um, if you look at the words of of the lyrics, it's like Tamisha Tursachagas um, Gola. It's like I am tired and will be forever. This is a very typical story of a woman who leaves the sea and marries her blonde Patrick, her Fionn Patrick, who is um, a beautiful man who's kind of you know she sees him and so she leaves the sea and everything she knows and she has a child with him and. Then she falls into melancholy because it doesn't matter that she loves him and that she loves her daughter. The sea always calls her. And then eventually she returns to the sea. And then you're finally left with Patrick and her her little daughter um, mourning the, their mother. I, I think there are other versions of the song, which mm. are more recent, which have been kind of rewritten and reimagined in English, where it shows the... The, the child and the father watching the mermaid out at sea and seeing the occasional flash of a silver fish's yeah. tail and knowing the mother's out there and they're forever divided. And it is that classic idea of it doesn't matter how much you love someone, you might simply you know, basically be the yeah. wrong species. You have to live where you're supposed to live kind of thing. Uh, I think that's really common for, you know, the... The Great Seal of Sulskeri, the the, um, the Gaelic song um, about a selkie, again, that that follows a very similar theme. It, it will leave. It has to leave because the sea will always call back. Yes. And the amount of times there are particularly stories of, of people being called back to the sea and having to leave children behind, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's very frequent. Yeah, um, we also then have uh, Agnet og Havmanden, uh, which is 
from Denmark, and it's part of the oral tradition, uh, approximately from the 14th century. Am I right? Yeah. Um, again, this is it. This may be contemporary with the Sea Maiden, which was the last one we talked about. Yeah. Um, we don't know how far back it goes in oral tradition. It was a, a, a folk tale, and then it became like a, a, a you know quite a rhythmic spoken poem in, in Danish, which you know I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to force on anyone. Um, this is an interesting twist, though, because in Agneta and the Merman. What happens is Agneta is passing the river on a bridge one day and a merman spies her and he swims up to the surface, having fallen in love with her, and immediately offers her his hand in marriage. And Agneta is kind of a spirited girl, so she takes his hand and goes down and marries him. They have seven sons. And then one day Agneta hears the chiming of the church bells and she pleads with her husband and says, I must go to the surface. I need to just visit the land I came from. And she goes up there, um, drawn by these church bells, and she remembers the life she had before and she realises that's where she belongs. So she never goes back. And so she stays there, uh, leaving the merman and her seven sons to grieve the fact that she's never returning to them. And if you go to Copenhagen... There is a bridge called the Hodgebrook Bridge. I hope I pronounced that semi-correctly. And this brilliant artist has made, has cast these statues in bronze. And if you look down over the bridge, you get a time when the boats aren't passing. You can see the statues of the seven sons um, and the merman himself all reaching up to the surface under the water. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that would be worth, <laughs> worth visiting just to see. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, that was, I mean, I'd really love to go and see that in person myself. But basically, a lot of people don't realise that it's there, but it's this, it was uh, made in 1992, apparently, and it was deliberately created to be an underwater sculpture by the Danish artist Suste Bonnen, um, and obviously was inspired by this story, Agnetta and the Merman, which I think is very cool. But that story has obviously been existent in Danish folklore for a really long time. I would be stunned if Hans Christian Andersen hadn't heard that and been inspired by it. Yeah, I, I would be as well. A small caveat, but just as you were talking about it, it reminded me actually of a folk tale uh, from Japan, which I saw a kabuki of <laughs> many years ago, which involved a young bride being sacrificed to um, the sort of the king, one of the kings of the seas, the, the lords of the seas. And she doesn't really want to be there, but she has to marry him and she doesn't want him. And she tries to leave and return to the surface. But when she breaches the surface, she transforms into this terrible sea monster because she now belongs, she's now part of the sea, not of the land. So she has been fundamentally changed. She transforms into this sea creature instead. I think it is a serpent. Um, and so in trying to get onto the land... Um, she triggers this mass panic. They attack her, she attacks back, it causes all sorts of problems. Um, and the whole way through the play, she's like, no, I don't want to marry this man, I don't want to marry this man, I don't want to marry this man. And then at the end, because of all of this rubbish and the fact she's refusing to marry him, she has to be executed. <laughs> and she's there, about to be executed. Her husband, her would-be husband, picks up his blade, and then she goes, wait, stop, 
seeing you with the blade in your hand and how strong and muscular you are. I have fallen in love. I will marry you. And I thought, that's bloody convenient, isn't it? <laughs> and he goes, oh, all right, puts the sword down and <laughs> and apparently they're happily ever married um, thereafter. But yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting, this idea that she was now of the sea and had been forced to forfeit her right to be on the land. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, our final one, which we absolutely know is an influence on Hans Christian Andersen, because we've got the notes where he's written in his own fair hand that he was influenced by this story, mm-hmm. except he genuinely writes something like, but I've given it a better ending. <laughs> oh, Hans. Is <laughs> <laughs> A Zalong by Friedrich de la Motte Fouque. Um, Fouquet, I think, sorry, which was written in 1811, uh, or published in 1811 anyway, is better known as Undine. And it's, again, it, it's part of this modern body, I say modern, I, I realise that 1811 isn't exactly modern, but technically modern body of fairy tales which are created. Um, and basically, it's a really involved story, and there's lots of convolutions and things, but to give you the broad strokes uh what happens is uh there's no sea involved it's a large lake a lake a large lake or pond body mm-hmm. of water inside the woods and a woodsman and his wife have a little daughter um the little daughter runs away into the forest one day and she doesn't come back and when they can't find her they start searching and eventually they find her drowned in the lake and they're both absolutely heartbroken and grief-stricken and then a little later uh, they find another little girl waiting at the side of the lake. So the woodsman brings her home and they bring her up as a daughter. Um, and she, you know, she's called Undine. And she tries very hard to be like them and with mixed results, but we won't go into that. But they love her all the same. Um, one day a prince is riding through the forest and, or a lord is riding through a forest and his horse goes lame. So he stops at the woodsman's cottage, and when he sees Undine, he falls in love with her and asks her to marry him. And she agrees, but there's a caveat to say, you know, if you... Uh, I think she's still aware of her kin that live in the lake, and they say, you shouldn't marry him, he's going to betray you. And, she's, and she sort of laughs it off and says, if he does, I will kill him. Ha ha ha. Not obviously thinking she would ever have to. Well... Once this lord has married the, has married her, he later on meets someone else, a young lady from another lordly household, and he forgets all about Undine. He just doesn't come home one day, and she's left there. Um, when Undine finds out what's happened, it turns out that the um, the woman that her husband has fallen in love with and married on top of the fact, because he says, "Oh well, it's kind of a pagan ritual. I couldn't." not really married to her she's not really human kind of thing it turns out that this was the supposedly drowned daughter of the woodsman in the first place who's been found and brought up as a lord's daughter Um, he falls in love with her undine is heartbroken she flees back to her forest and her lake um but her bitterness and her anger won't give her any rest yeah Um, (laughs) the man she married is kind of very very nervous about bodies of water after this for some reason and he has the he has the well in his castle boarded up. Because people can survive a long time um, without water. Uh. <laughs> yes. Nobody's supposed to go to that well. 
Um, Undine is determined to have her revenge. When he eventually has the boards removed from the lake, she waits until nightfall, and then she creeps out of the well, goes into the castle, and she does in fact murder her husband. <laughs> it's, it's the good for you gift. <laughs> it's good for her gift. <laughs> So I think the bits Hans Christian Andersen were taking, you know, the idea of this sea creature who really shouldn't be with a human um, and the fact that she's kind of let down by the fact he doesn't really yeah. love her back the way she wants to be loved back. But Hans Christian Andersen thought that she should sacrifice herself rather than yeah. murder the man who abandoned her. Though at least her. he did also rewrite it so that the prince too. didn't knowingly abandon the Little Mermaid, whereas with Undine, that was... they were married... Like, a covenant was made there and betrayed. <laughs> yep. Yep, absolutely. Some might even say that Nadine <laughs> had a point. <laughs> okay, so let's kind of delve into the themes of the story, because there are quite a few of them. And again, as we've said, different people will really kind of read different aspects um, of the story and things will jump out to them so hopefully we'll cover everything but there's always the possibility we've missed something that you personally feel is central to the story um, i think the first and probably one of the most obvious ones is the idea of selfless love and self-sacrifice yeah i kind of like the way uh, certainly as an adult i like the way this is is understood in the little mermaid because it's a sense of she genuinely takes the stone dagger from her sisters and she creeps you know, like the supernatural creature she is, to the cabin where he's lying asleep, having clearly just consummated his marriage with his new wife. And yeah. she considers killing him so that she can go home. And it, it's this idea that she goes, she's, in, in that moment, she it's almost like in that moment she really understands how much she loves him. She would rather he was alive and happy than he was dead. And she, even though it's going to cost her her life, and she got to go home. So, yeah, yeah. It, and I think again, it it is that idea of what is what is it to be selflessly in love. And a part of me doesn't like the term selfless love because I'm not sure that selfish love is really a thing. Um, I don't. I'm not sure whether you would count it that as love. Potentially more like an obsession. But it's this idea where things shift from. The love being there to serve her, to the love being there, regardless. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like the fact that he allows her the moment to consider actually taking her life back, and then realizing that okay, but that doesn't. It's almost like you can't really be selfless unless you've contemplated being selfish. If that makes sense. Yes. And it is, but at the same time, you get that, and, and that really helps bring it forward, that self-sacrifice, because, you know, one could argue, is it really selfish to, um, you know, decide actually what your life instead of somebody else's? Um, you know, we could say, oh, well, you know, if you're, if you kill someone in self-defense, we don't tend to think of it as a selfish act. We tend to think of it as a, a general survival act. But And you could say, well, this was self-defense, but there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of complications there. Um, and I think Hans Christian Andersen really does bring those to the fore, and it makes this self-sacrifice all the more poignant um, 
particularly again as from the perspective of a modern reader you think about the fact that this is a child you know yeah there's a there's a lot to look at with that one but i think yes. that is something that the story actually does quite well um this is one where i can kind of see it being a theme but i'm not sure that it's necessarily a theme that i personally want to advance and yeah. that is the theme of patience under suffering um and it's like that's a very christian centric principle and in some respects that is something that that does have value i mean if you are if you are suffering because i don't know let's say you have a a chronic illness and you're in pain well mm -hmm. you're and you, you're always going to be in a certain amount of pain it doesn't necessarily serve anyone mm. even yourself to constantly go on about how much pain you're in so you know maybe you accept the pain and you accept it's part of you and you're, you're patient with the whole thing and you you, you don't spread it the misery around so i can mm. kind of see the value of that in some respects but on the other hand it's like you're suffering <laughs> and you're not letting someone know you're suffering yeah. and i i think that that is something that really kind of is highlighted for me because i know certainly from a young age um without even meaning to people instilled this idea that one should suffer in silence because yeah. you didn't want to be a burden and in particularly for young women you didn't want to hear them complain you know they should just grin and bear it. Um, and that has affected a lot of people, particularly young people, and has been one of, I think, one of the big precursors to the suffering of mental issues instead of physical, um, whereby we've kind of got over the, okay, well, actually, perhaps most of us will say if we're physically suffering with something and it's bad enough, um, but a lot of us still will struggle with talking if we're mentally suffering with something yeah yeah absolutely okay so another one is the loneliness of being an outsider or having no voice which i do think is very poignant and probably one of the other enduring elements of this fairy tale because no matter what the age um, there will always be people who understand that I think that was the bit that resonated with me as a child was the fact that when I first read it you had this mermaid who had been told this is the way things always are and she's like but why I'm yeah like, I can see myself in that and the whole questioning the grandmother and saying but why and then being horrified because the grandmother tells her the truth and says we don't have souls but it's okay we live for 300 years and that's quite long enough and the mermaid at 15 going but that means I'll die and I'll cease existing kind of this is not good. Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> sure I don't I like those that. odds. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I kind of really identified that with that, but everyone else seems to mm. be accepting the party line and being fine with it. So the trouble is she's just as much yeah. an outsider when she becomes human. The only thing that will make her an insider is marrying the prince. And even then she won't have her voice because that was yeah. never part of the original bargain. Her voice is gone forever. So I think that that just resonates with a lot of people. Um, another one is breaking the rules yeah. for a shot at what you want. Yeah, again, this is something that I was like, well, I don't accept the party line. I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. Um, 
even though you could argue that at 15 she probably hasn't really given the matter enough thought and time but I suppose it's that teenage thing of you know oh if I don't have him I'll die or if I don't have her I'll die if they don't love me back kind of thing which is a perfectly normal phase for most teenagers to go through at some point and then ideally they get over it it's it's a joke that you see a lot of people sort of saying like when i watched the little mermaid as a child it's like yeah triton go away let her do all she wants as when i watched the little mermaid as an adult (laughs) ariel you're 16 (laughs) you're a child child. Yeah, definitely. But the whole idea of, you know, I don't accept the status quo, I don't like it, Um, I'm not going to do harm to other people, but I'm willing to risk quite a lot to get what I want. There is something that's admirable about that, Mm -hmm. even though it ends in tragedy for her. Yeah, completely agree. Um, Okay, a, a big one... I think that is very definitely subtext is the acceptance that romantic and or sexual love does not always beget the same kind of love in return. Yes. And you're not necessarily entitled to it either. Yeah, that's that's the really important one. Um, Someone's not into you, that sucks. But you know what? <laughs> yeah. That they're, they're a whole person with their own wants and preferences and personality and, and you know, life. Um, you don't get to control that and it sucks if they don't want you but maybe they just don't so find yeah and i think that's the important thing is that there's no doubting the little mermaid's suffering you know we don't we don't sort of turn on her and think well you know this is all on you we don't you know we pity her we we emote with her we're with her we understand the situation that she's in um but we recognise that her decision not to kill someone because of that, you know, is potentially <laughs> the right one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um... Uh, so I think kind of in line with that is being aware of what change will cost you. Yeah, and it's obviously a very big and quite... It's almost... Uh, not mutilating but she goes through a lot of physical discomfort if not pain in order to to change so that she's more human appropriate if you like yeah and i weirdly enough i think this is something that a lot of people pick on uh pick up on when they're reading the little mermaid from the perspective of um you know from a trans perspective i mean there's like literally trans charities which are called mermaids or, or i think um yeah. And I can I can understand that. Um, you know, this this idea of having to physically change in order to be recognized, in order to be able to live the way that you want to live. I can understand why that version of the story, you know, um really comes to the fore in the modern day. Uh and I think this is one thing that the um that the Disney film actually did successfully was that they did instill this idea that Ariel obviously um, was interested in the human realm before she saw the prince. Her decision to go up there wasn't just because of him, but also was, um, you know, influenced by her desire to be part of that world. (laughs) 
pursue what you did there. But yeah, Yay. absolutely. Yeah, he was he was the catalyst. He was definitely yeah. the catalyst. You, you could argue that he was almost the means to an end. If like if you want to stay there, Ariel, you've got three days. And you have yeah. to make him fall in love with you. There's a, there's a very cynical, dark retelling of Disney's Little Mermaid there waiting to be told. Yes, there is. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the last two kind of go together, really. And that is, you won't always get what you want, which we've kind of already touched on. Yeah. Um, but also, the rewards of being a good, unselfish person will last longer than romance. Again, technically, probably true, but that's a really unsatisfying <laughs> uh, conclusion to what was supposed to be a fairy tale or a love story. Yes. And I, I think in some respects, as a, as a fairy tale, as you say, it's very unsatisfying. But that kind of points to the reality of it, which is that, yes, it, it is better, um, but the pros might not be as obvious and you might have to deal with the pain and it might take longer to recover from. Okay, let's look at a few reimaginings and adaptations. Um, before we get into that, it's a, there seems to be an argument which I don't think we can completely ignore you know, the elephant or the, you know, the huge mermaid in the room mm -hmm. on this one. And that is, who does the little mermaid belong to? Well, yes. technically all fairy tales belong to everyone, but by that token, we should never behave as if a story belongs only to us and that our interpretation is the only valid one yeah. and that everyone else's reading of it is wrong. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, that said, a reimagining that takes the outline and ignores the theme isn't much of a retelling. No, and this is something I've found with... I think it really depends what genre you're going for and how you push something. Um, there's been a few books where it's like, oh, this is Beauty and the Beast meets Tamlin meets uh, East of the Sun. Easter. I'm not actually talking about S.J. Mass. I'm genuinely not. I'm talking about a book called Echo North by Joanna R Ruth Myers. Um Mm -hmm. and what she very deliberately did in there was she removed the sexual subtext of all of those fairy tales and folk songs right and the whole thing felt fell flat as a result i'm okay with fairy tale mashups i'm okay with um people saying yeah but i want to i i basically want the outline of the fairy story um but don't then tell me that this is, this is a modernisation of a classic tale because it's not. You've ignored some very important detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and I also think that taking a fairy tale and just sort of popping it into a different setting isn't necessarily enough to, uh, enough of... of a retelling, if that makes sense, unless you are actually using the new environment to explore other and different things. I think one of the things that really bugs me is when you take a, you say, I'm doing a retelling of Cinderella, I'm sitting it in the modern day, and then you remove the essential characteristics of Cinderella, which is, you know, endurance under very poor circumstances, the question of familial abuse. Um, the the subnotes of grief that go on, the fact that it's okay to want a break and to dream bigger than your circumstances allow, and you make her this this really sassy but but down on down on her luck woman who 
you know, has no connection to any sort of family at all. And she's just, she's kind of a bitch, if you see what I mean. She's not yeah. the kind person who's advancing based on, on the fact that she is a decent human being. Yeah, which is, I think, probably why Cinderella has been one of the only successful live adaptations of, of Disney, really, for me, is the fact that they recognised, ah, kindness, that is at the... At the- at the core of her character um and actually what what does it mean to be in an abusive household i haven't watched the latest little mermaid um i have watched and read a fair amount of sort of criticism from uh, about it um one thing i do kind of like is the fact that they have put it into a new setting um they it's very much uh, i mean the original um disney movie uh was it wasn't actually uh uh, danish um the setting seems to be very mediterranean if you actually look at it yeah Um, otherwise why have they got why have they got hermit crabs talking in jamaican accents yeah uh, (laughs) (laughs) um and so it, it kind of i like the idea okay so they've moved it to something which which is very much more of the Caribbean and part of what they did then is that they've got Eric and he is adopted and for me that worked in that they managed to change the setting they created this new kind of vibrant culture um, it ties in with a little bit with sort of sort of folklore mythology and things like that in terms of what Ariel represents etc I don't have time to go into all of that but with they then basically said, okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to have Eric and he is adopted. And in that way, they added something new by, first of all, creating a connection between Ariel and Eric in that both of them have had loving backgrounds, but both of them have also had sadness in their background, uh, you know, a loss, and yet feel at odds with where they are. They're welcomed, they're loved, they are supported, and they appreciate that, but there is something within them which still says, I don't quite belong here, or um, I'm I'm kind of missing something of myself. And for me, that that was a great, idea, yeah. great way of actually creating this connection between the two of them, of two people who haven't who aren't running away from terrible trauma, you know, who have a welcome home, but who are, who are exploring self-identity. And I thought that that was actually a really nice little change. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you, as in basically the live-action Disney films tend to be bloodless remakes of, you know, what of a, of a winning formula. Generally, with the exception of Cinderella, which is pretty good, I kind of enjoyed Beauty and the Beast, I haven't seen The Little Mermaid. Um, it's not something I care enough to go to the cinema to see, but, you know, it turns up on Disney Plus and maybe I'll dip into it. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the problem also is the CGI animals because they try and make them look realistic and cute at the same time. And it's like, just pick one, seriously. Yeah, <laughs> just no, pick but one. I think that's the problem is that they've, they have just gone cgi animals and uh, anyway i'm not going to go into that because honestly um that that's probably one of my major criticisms is is how they've actually done the undersea world because i think they've actually removed the magic of it really yeah i'd agree with that from the clips i've seen yeah um the disney's the little mermaid the 1980 i couldn't believe it was 1989 (laughs) i thought it was 1990 something but it wasn't um and 
obviously I saw that when it originally came out. I think I don't think I saw it in the cinema. I wasn't even born. No, I was still ten. <laughs> you weren't born. I was still a I was ten, okay? So it came out exactly the right time for me. And I remember at the time thinking they fixed the story. The story I'd read at eight. I had a you know, I got to the end and thought, I don't like yeah. mermaids anymore. Um, in fact I think I no thinking about it, I'd heard the original story way, way before that when I was about three or four and remembered it and been disturbed by it, then read it myself hoping it would be different <laughs> and it wasn't different and then got the Disney version um, and it, it's a, a great sort of animated adventure story about someone going for what they want kind of thing but really it misses the point of the original fairy tale Deliberately, it deliberately misses the point of the original fairy tale um, and probably makes it more child appropriate from that perspective. Yes. Uh, again, it is one of those things where I feel like Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Little Mermaid for adults. Yes. Even if it's. Possibly a specific adult. <laughs> for very specific adults. Um, and so it is a story for adulthood rather than for childhood. Um, I have a lot of appreciation for the, for the Disney. Um, cartoon yeah um because yes they did change large parts of the kind of they, they kind of missed the themes and ideas of the story but they actually in a way that a lot of the cartoons did they were able to reflect on different things instead with the changes that they made um and so and i think that's also why a lot of people love the little mermaid um, because some of the themes that we did explore, like the idea of the pain of changing yourself, um, like not feeling like you fit and needing to find something else, has spoken to so many people. And again, um, you know, trans people talking about, okay, I, but I've never quite felt comfortable living in, in the body that I'm living in, and I want to be part of something else. Um, and I have parents who perhaps love me but don't necessarily understand or approve or want you know or, or say that it's dangerous etc um and then even without you know that radical thing the idea of sort of change and there's been a lot of kind of woke arguments about oh this is a terrible influence it's a story about girls having to physically change themselves in order to uh to sort of be pleasing for men and again i point out the fact that Ariel wanted to be part of the human world. She was fascinated by the human world before all of that. She would put herself in dangerous situations because she connected with it. Yes, she did fall in love with Eric, um, but there was, you know, there was a, a deliberate decision on her part um, to go up there, not just for him, but because she cared about that world. In fact, if you think about it, she was acting like a typical teenager, sort of mooning around and smiling. And, you know, it was all imaginary. It was all in her head. It wasn't until her father found her and destroyed her collection of human artifacts and things that, you know, she she basically had a one force that was attracting her to the surface, uh, or one catalyst forcing her towards the surface, and another that was forcing her away from her original life. Yeah. So she might never have gone to the surface looking for Eric specifically. It might have been something she did when she was much older. Um, if it hadn't been for her father making her feel that she was unwelcome because she was different at yeah, home. Yeah, that she had to change who she was fundamentally. Um, and I, I think that's yeah. another thing, is that there is a, actually a very interesting and engaging examination of parental relationships in that. 
Um, because yeah. I liked Triton in the original cartoon. Um, I didn't always like yeah. what he did, um, but and it's one of the things that some people have criticised is how Triton is played in the live action versus in in the movie where. Uh, in the in the cartoon tune where in the cartoon he destroys things in a rage and then you see his regret he he realizes that he's done something wrong um that he's lost his temper whereas the triton in the movie just still feels very too stoic rather than someone who yeah ha- who lashes out because he's frightened and he's worried for his daughter because he has lost his wife you know? Yeah, he he is literally a personification of the forces of the sea. I mean, they even make the point, don't they, at the beginning of the film? Yeah. It's like fair sailing today, King Triton be in a friendly type mood kind of thing. So when he loses his temper, he's not entirely in control and he will destroy things because he is just basically the sea. He's kind of like this conduit for all this power. Yes. But it, you get this absolute sense of love, I think, yeah. within it. And that is probably also at the core of why I love The Little Mermaid is that, again, it's a story about finding the self, I think. Finding yourself, um, the the cartoon version. Um, and not necessarily because you have been horrifically hurt or that you have don't have a safe place to fall back on. Because Ariel does. And that's actually kind of almost why she's able to, though she does get that emotional push, as you say, when Triton um, threatens that safety for her in terms of her self-expression. Definitely. Okay. Um, a, a fair, I say fairly recent, it's probably about five years ago now, but there's To Kill a Kingdom by Alexandra Christo. Um, this is weirdly a kind of young adult enemy slover situation whereby the mermaids <laughs> are in fact sirens. And they are very much against um, the humans to the point where it's almost a competition amongst them to swim up and catch one and and drown them, you know, like some dolphins will. And the humans are very much sort of like, no, we'll kill the sirens. It's an interesting story. It kind of follows the basic outline of A Little Mermaid in some respects. There is a sea witch who turns the main character human. Um, literally to send her in as kind of like a stealth assassin type thing. It does do the thing where it examines uh, parental-child relationships, but you've got an abusive mother figure in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I like it as an adaptation because it doesn't stay faithful to the original. and It does its own thing. So it takes some of the themes and it runs with those themes and it doesn't try to pretend it's more than yeah. it is. Um, and I remember quite enjoying it when I did read it. Um, by far the best adaptation if you want to look at the actual feeling and the original themes of The Little Mermaid as written by Hans Christian Andersen is The Little Android by (laughs) Melissa Marr. Melissa Marr wrote the Lunar Chronicles, which are the fairy tales that are kind of set within this space-faring society, so some of them are on Earth, some of them are on the Moon, etc. And this is a story set in the same universe, Basically, an android gains a certain amount of sentience and she finds something, a locket or something like that in space. And she sees uh, the man who is basically his oxygen's running out in his spacesuit. And she sort of sees him and something strange happens in her circuitry that she doesn't really understand. But she, because she's an android, she doesn't need mm-hmm. to breathe. She manages to get him on board a ship, um, but she keeps his locket. And she's hoping that one day 
she'll be able to find him again, present him with the locket and say, I was the one who saved you. Um, a lot happens to her. She manages to get herself fixed, put, you know, her, her memory chips put in a different body that looks very female because basically it's a pleasure droid <laughs> but we'll skip I over see. that bit <laughs> um, but the problem is that the person who rescues her and puts her in this this other body says look I'm really sorry I can't repair the voice unit so you won't be able to speak um, she manages to get herself hired by the guy who she's rescued so, and he he's very fond of her he thinks she's great but there's also this other woman on the ship that she is really, really jealous of. And she tries to set up little traps and things for her as well, particularly when she finds out that, you know, he might be inclined towards her. Because he's convinced that, she's convinced that if she finally presents him with the locket and says, I saved your life, he will fall in love mm -hmm. with her. She shouldn't be capable of love, and yet she is, she does love him. And it all comes to this very sort of, I mean, I actually got choked up. That was how unusual this was at the end, where it's a situation where she has the choice of saving his life and this woman's life um, or sacrificing mm -hmm. herself. And despite everything, despite this huge emotional journey she's gone on, a, a journey she shouldn't have been able to go on because she's an android, um, she decides that, you know, fuck it, I... I I'd almost saved up enough money for a new body um, and this body is failing and I'm going to die. But she has the money transferred to him so that he can escape again from an abusive parental type situation. And she leaves the locket with the woman Aww. that he was in love with. And then she does. She watches the ship, you know, take off and watches them escape. And she sits down and she sort of, drifts off into the stars and then gradually everything shuts down she literally becomes sea foam almost and it's it really captures the original story it's it's so funny because it, it's in an anthology of stories set in that same universe called stars above and it, it almost goes unremarked and then you read it it's like oh my god that's the best little mermaid retelling i've ever I mean, read that just <laughs> me heart and soul <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, it was like, I need a moment. <laughs> I need a moment, and I haven't even read it. <laughs> it's worth reading just for that one story. The others are kind of like, yeah, this is okay, but that story was like, <laughs> um, Okay, two others, just very quickly. The Sea Witch by Sarah Henning. Kind of enjoyed this. It's yeah. from the Sea Witch Ursula's perspective. So it's clearly written yeah. off Disney's The Little Mermaid, the cartoon. And it's trying to make a feminist point, as in, you know, maybe you shouldn't just throw all your chips in on this one guy. Maybe you should actually get to know him and stuff first. And she sort of, it, there's a really interesting sort of friendship to enemies type situation. And she ends up becoming this monstrous sea witch creature in order to warn um, other little mermaids who decide they've mm -hmm. fallen in love with humans not to go kind of thing the whole point is that she is supposed to make yeah. the price so high that they'll bonk <laughs> and then when they don't <laughs> and then when they don't i mean it, it's interesting i think i gave it like three out of five stars so I, it was enough that I, I wanted to read to the end and i thought that it made some interesting points but <laughs> it 
you know, I'm still like the little android is still the best retelling. <laughs> I think Lee Bardugo in her book, um, I want to say the short story collection Amongst yeah. the Thorns, I think it's called, and they're all like folk tales that are set in the Grisha verse, which might have been folk tales that, you know, the characters would have told to each other. And there's one called When Water Sang Fire. And again, this is a Little Mermaid retelling. Um, and it's mm. it's going, again, from a slightly more feminist perspective where the prince is actively an abusive force. Um, it's it's a good retelling. I, again, it, but it, why is it so many Little Mermaid retellings completely miss the original point? Is it because the original point is a really painful one? I think so, but I, I honestly think that a lot of it comes from the fact that... Um, for a lot of people of this generation, their first encounter with a Little Mermaid is is the Disney cartoon rather than the original. Yeah, um, and I think it then kind of became trendy, which I'm fine with. I'm at, I, I'm all for people using fairy tales to explore current modern social ideas, um, but I have a lot of appreciation for people who actually kind of look at what some of the core values and themes and ideas of the fairy tale are in order to do something new. Um, and I do kind of feel like the feminist angle in that, used in the in that particular way has been overdone now. Yeah, I agree. I also feel... some. I've read other Little Mermaid retellings, which I am not going to mention here because I despised them because they really took the aggressive feminist stance on it and in the sense of yeah let's make every single man in it an absolute piece of shit kind of thing um and they're they're always touted as being really edgy and bold and a you know a bold feminist reimagining it's like you haven't done anything different except that you've made the main character weak rather than decisive yeah and you have you've only made her look marginally more sympathetic by making any male character absolutely horrible and I've read several of those, and I agree, it's overdone. And I think it kind of denotes a lack of understanding of the original source material yeah, as well. Yeah, or very shallow understanding. And again, I think it can be done right. We've got examples of where it's done right. Um, but I think that you sh it should be done with consideration. Personally, I would love to see a feminist retelling which actually looks to the point of view of expectation. Which is actually yeah. really maybe her expectation that he should love her is the issue. We have lots of stories about sort of like, uh, oh, guys yeah. complaining about being friend-zoned and stuff like that. That's what's happening to her. She's like, I've been friend-zoned by a guy who I have decided must be the one to love me. <laughs> um, and, you know, she's thinking, well, I was the one who saved you. But actually, you know, in the original, um, he, he was carried up to, and taken care of in the temple. That was also, I think, part of the saving. Um, and it kind of stands to reason that perhaps he might have fallen in love with the person who was at his bedside at that point, you know? Yeah, when he was vulnerable and, you know, his guard was down. And he didn't even know that the mermaid had saved him in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> she couldn't exactly tell him. So, yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting fairy tale with many layers, definitely. Yeah. And on that note, I think that we have reached the end of our discussion. Um, as always, uh, we'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, are there any, any other um, Little Mermaid retellings that uh, you think that we should maybe 
check out, uh, please do let us know. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yeah, I've just read this brilliant adult fantasy adventure called The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi, and it's by Shannon Chakraborty, who wrote the City of Brass series. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are very. this is very definitely a book aimed at adults. It's not a young adult. Um, do you remember the slightly cringy... <laughs> Uh, Sinbad the Sailor films. Ah, Sinbad. Which I will admit, <laughs> ah, Sinbad. Um, look, I will admit I loved those as a child because they were they showed a world that I wasn't familiar with. They were adventurous. It was exactly the sort of thing I like. I am perfectly aware now and have been for some time that they were taken from source material that was heavily, heavily edited for a Western mm. audience, uh, quite probably inappropriately, even if no harm was really intended. Now, what Chakraborty has done with The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi is she's clearly been inspired by the same thing. She's not the movies, the original source material. Um, But she has really delved into the, you know, the the original text. She's read it in the original. She hasn't just gone with translations and then other people's Mm -hmm. translations are translations. Um, She looks at the history and culture of the area of that time. I mean, this is basically set in a sort of, you know, the medieval Middle East, which we don't really see an awful lot about, um, particularly the seafaring side of it. Mm-hmm. And this is really sort of going from port to port um, and having adventures and things. We're not sort of going way out into the high seas. Um, and it's just really fascinating. Amina, the main character, is a 40-something-year-old woman who did not want to get married under the the Muslim tradition at the time, she felt the call to adventure on the high seas. So she ran away to sea and eventually she stole a ship and she kind of became a notorious pirate. Um, And when she eventually got home, you know, she was pregnant and, you know, she'd had about four or five husbands by that point as well. They all kept dying on her along the way and then she'd find the next one. And She's an incredibly flawed character. She talks about the fact that I'm dreadful at picking men. I pick men and I marry them, and it's clear I've picked them because yeah. they look good running a sail up rather <laughs> rather than that they're smart or they've saved lots of money or they're good providers. <laughs> I just look at them nice. and think, yeah, damn, I'd like a piece of that kind of thing. And you know, she acknowledges the fact that she's Muslim, but she also breaks the rules and then she asks for forgiveness and then she kind of breaks the rules again. And um, she's just a really funny, fascinating character. And it's the thing where she's supposed to be retired, yeah. but there's this one last job that could really set her up for life <laughs> and the rest of her family. So she leaves her child with her mother, who, you know, she's managed to get back in touch with. And heads back off to sea and you find out all this interesting stuff and there's there's demons and rocks and there's various other uh, mythological creatures and there's various different i mean Mm -hmm. her crew is very diverse without being diversity tm if you see what i mean as in she has um she has black characters she has um gay characters as well and everyone's kind of like okay well i think your religion's wrong but it's none of my business you do you kind of thing she has a christian on board for example um, and she doesn't shy away from the fact that in certain areas where on board ship it's kind of like it doesn't matter because Amina says you know what it doesn't matter as long as you can do your job um, in other mm. places various different religions and things are all persecuting each other you know she doesn't shy away from the unpleasantness the historical side of things is quite accurate 
as far as I understand. And it's fascinating. It's so beautifully coloured and everything. It's everything I wanted from Sinbad without knowing that I wanted it as a child, if you see what I mean. It's such <laughs> a good book. Yes. Okay, I will definitely have to check that out because it just sounds amazing. It's a really good audiobook as well, I would say. Okay, all right. That's worth knowing. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.